seminary schools beginning to be infiltrated by Gnostics and in both sides of the branches of Christianity in both Roman uh, Catholicism and in Protestantism, and it's by different factions. And what their agenda is, is, is to control all science and education outside the Catholic Church. And even to this day, all science and education answers in the West to the Royal Society. They control all the education outside of the church. And they got control over the seminary schools. And it's important to understand that they've been doing this for at least a couple hundred of years. They don't want the leaders to prepare Christians for what they view as the coming end time. So it's about that sort of control. And so the ministers in the church, in the Protestant side, aren't taught prehistory or prophecy. And they're told uh, more and more that it's the values, it's not the actual literal accuracy to the Bible is, is what's important. It's only the values. Unfortunately, people are taught these values and principles and they don't have the, the context of the whole Bible. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. Today, Luke and I are privileged to bring back for the third time, Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and his sequel book is coming out this month, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, and this one lays out the path of the Nephilim warring against God's people all through the Old Testament, all through the Bible, and that narrative that is often not spoken about in Christian circles, in churches, because, well, let's face it, partly because our seminaries are not teaching these things. They don't understand or teach prehistory and prophecy. And they don't understand, as Steve Quayle calls it, the Rosetta Stone of understanding the Old Testament and the biblical narrative that comes from a proper understanding of Genesis 6. Gary lays out the foundation of these infiltration into our churches and seminaries and the control of knowledge by these different groups, these factions of evil that want a counter-narrative to the God of the Bible. We get into the roots of communism and national socialism that became the Nazis. And what was this exchange of knowledge between Hitler and his occult search for power? The same exchange of knowledge that happened in Genesis 6 when the Watchers came down and Mankind gave them their women in exchange for knowledge. This same thing is happening once again, guys. The days of Noah returning. So enjoy this first half of our conversation with Gary Wayne. And guys, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Send a link to this episode to your family and friends to help grow the channel. 
And if you want to support us further, you can click one of the support links in the show notes. Thanks as always for listening, guys. Let's get into our conversation with Gary Wayne. Welcome, Gary Wayne, back to uh, the Days of Noah podcast. We are privileged to have you again, Gary. Good to see you and up there in Canada, right? And uh, man, we're having the El, El Nino, El Nino this year, I guess. Mild uh, weather. Is it El Nino or is it La Nino? And yes, uh, thank you for inviting me back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, we've had some deep dives already just in the two episodes we've had talking about kind of the biblical foundation, Genesis 6, about your book and everything and and how to understand that worldview properly biblically. And then the last time we we dug into bloodlines, what I thought we could maybe start out covering is... We touched very briefly last time on the infiltration of the seminaries, the Jesuits on the Catholic side, the Gnostics on the more the Protestant side. And that has kind of been a topic in the forefront of my mind the last few months that I really want to dig into more. I want to know a little bit more about how did this happen? What are they? What have they done? What what can we point to as evidence? Uh, what are they targeting? Um so, yeah, anything that you want to expand on that, as long as you want to go, I think that would be a, a great right. way to start. So, you know, what's interesting is you have a, I think, a nexus point of two things that people don't necessarily kind of connect, but is a sort of essential to what you're talking about and the manifestation of what we see going on when within the seminary schools. So you have an education starting to happen of the masses. So before, say, 200 years ago, uh, people were fed the information, right? And that's where the saying comes from is a little knowledge is dangerous because they would tell you that you can't, you can't read the Bible yourself. You can't have a translation that you can read it. We're going to teach in things like the Roman church in Latin. So you can't understand things and you have to just accept what we say. And so people who would read the Bible, that's the ones that they would accuse of, of having a little knowledge and would accuse of as being dangerous. And so the other part that starts to intersect here is that you have uh, seminary schools beginning to be infiltrated by Gnostics and in both sides of the branches of Christianity, in both Roman uh, Catholicism and in Protestantism, and it's by different factions. And so in a response to remain in control and in control of the information and keeping people blind to the feudal systems that they had set up across the world to essentially just look after the elite, the 1%, as they're kind of called today, but it's a little bit bigger than that because that elite structure in their first two classes were populated by the the nobility that takes their bloodlines back to the giants. So you have the kings and the queens and the larger royal families of the noble elite, but it also included the priest class at the higher levels. Uh, it included all of the control and the teaching by royals and the elites of education. And they controlled the army through having all the high positions because they had this... <laughs> 
superior position and they were educated. So they, they used that to uh, control the world and control the information. And now as there's an educated class starting to come up, things need to be changed. And they, they know this is coming because they want part of that change, but they want to be able to control that change. So you have two two things that are very, very important and happening. I'll start with the Protestant side first, and it'll make a little bit more sense on the Roman Catholic side. So you have in 1662, even though the organization begins, say, in the 1640s, it's officially chartered by King Charles Stuart in 1662, and it's the Royal Society, also known as the Invisible College. And the Royal Society is one of those branch or organizations that will intersect into the Thelemic tree of Masonic uh, and Royal secret societies at the Rosicrucian level and at the Freemasonry level. And Illuminati would be the uh, at the lower level uh, in, in the middle of those three lower lower levels with the royal bloodlines above on the trunk. And so the Invisible College is kind of a name that's named after the original invisible ones, not only from the Bible, but they're uh, visible ones on earth. But these visible ones like to remain invisible on earth. And the originally comes from the Invisible 33 after the fall of the Knights Templar. And if that sounds familiar with the Council of 33, it is those 33 families the 13 families above that. And then, then they branch downwards from the uh, Council of 33 to the Committee of 300 families, with the Rosicrucians being just below that and populated at the top level of the Rosicrucians by pure blood royales, and then lower levels rising up through that trunk. So you have this creation of the invisible ones, um, and that's why it's called not only the Royal College, it's also called the Invisible College because it's, again, they like to plant their ideology, their history, who they are in plain sight because they know the mundane. They're not going to recognize this, this for the most part. And what their agenda is, is, is to control all science and education outside the Protestant, outside the Catholic Church. Mm. And even to this day, all science and education answers in the West to the Royal Society. And there's a painting that's hung in the entranceway as you go into the Royal Society uh, for the inspirational founder, which was Francis Bacon. And, of course, it was a Rosicrucian and the second most powerful person in England, both in Queen Elizabeth and Prince James Rain. And he's the one who's going to do the final edit on the King James Version Bible. And he's the one who creates the language that's going to be the language for the Commonwealth and a new English. And I call it Baconian English that he starts through secret societies like the Knights of the Helmet Society and the Spear Shaker Society, which uh, developed the language by hiring young uh, poets and playwrights and producing literature that was developing this language that we see first published in a large way with the King, with the KGV Bible. So the mighty Prince James is a unique name, but that's a different sort of rabbit hole as you get into what mighty is and his divine right to rule. But it's important that the Stuarts um, are 
a royal bloodline, and they are at the center of the creation of secret societies. So as James comes to England, you see Freemasonry expand with them, and you start to see uh, the organizational structure of that Thelemic tree start to fill in the gaps beginning after the fall of the Templars. And this is for the modern organization where you have the invisible 33, I'll come back to them in a couple of minutes, starts to develop the Rosicrucians below. They're actually, the invisible 33 were the original Rosicrucians after the fall of the Templars. Then they create these other organizations, the Committee of 300, the Rosicrucians underneath them, and then the Illuminati and also Freemasonry. So, they control all the education outside of the church and they got control over the seminary schools. And it's important to understand that they've been doing this for at least a couple hundred of couple hundred of years. And we see it manifested not only in the seminary schools, but also in churches where you see two things. You see very strange imagery and iconology showing up like triangles and pyramids and all sorts of things that you wouldn't expect to be in a Protestant church. I mean, we see the history coming down in the Roman church and all of the things like, you know, like gargoyles on (laughs) cathedrals, but you would think Protestantism would keep that separate. And they did for a while until this incursion. And then the other incursion is uh, twofold is, is one that the Bible needs to be interpreted as a polytheist would, which is the interpretive approach. And then the other thing is that's manifested is, is that they don't teach prehistory or prophecy because it goes back to they don't want that message to get out and they don't want the leaders to prepare Christians for what they view as the coming end time. So it's about that sort of control. And so the ministers in the church, in the Protestant side, aren't taught prehistory or prophecy. And they're told uh, more and more that it's the values. It's not the actual literal accuracy to the Bible is, is what's important. It's only the values. Unfortunately, people are taught these values and principles, and they don't have the, the context of the whole Bible. How, how much of that is um, a result of trying to stay in the safe lane as Darwinism and the Age of Enlightenment and Age of Reason was pushing against <clears throat> was pushing against the church, and the church maybe wanting to stay. Well, let's stay with the stuff we know for sure, not some of this sure. weird stuff. Well, that's part of what the Royal Society did. They sponsored Darwinism. Okay, I mean he was polytheist that studied Hinduism and was essentially Hinduism or Buddhist or both, and he took that sort of nebulous type of spiritual evolution and applied it to its evolutionary theory. And it's an allegorical understanding of the secret societies and the adepts of the disembodied spirits eventually reaching godhood. It's got nothing to do with humanity. And it's one of those principles that the Royal Society, education today, the seven sciences in ages past... Uh, had as their four main goals. And again, that's the red flag. So uh, in education, where it is lead people away from God, number one. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how. So evolution works, (laughs) things like that, right? Doesn't have to be true. Just make them not believe in the God of the Bible. Second goal is to not give God credit for anything. Didn't create anything. 
is not all that important. It is a normal angel, part of the 12 archons created by uh, Sophia in Gnosticism that Satan is an equal amongst, and it's the God of the Bible who goes rogue in that belief system. And if Sophia sounds familiar as a, a wisdom goddess, that right. should make sense because the that's the theology that goes through education. Philosophy is the love of Sophia. Mm-hmm. And you see all of that imagery rep- you know, representing their, their polytheist gods and history and genealogies all throughout science and education. The uh, third agenda is is to slander God for the invisible ones, the true invisible ones, the fallen angels, because they don't do that because they know the true power of God. So they use their spirits offspring and their useful idiots, as they like to call them. That's where that term comes from, who support them. It's kind of like the one who serves Dracula in uh, Bram Stoker's, uh, you know, Dracula's uh, literature where i think his name is renberg and he's basically a useful idiot that serves this evil creature Mm -hmm. right Uh, that's how they view humans who who serve them and then the fourth goal is to honor their pantheon of gods of course we see that so Mm -hmm. they want to bring that whole concept into the church as well. How do you lead people away from God? Well, it's all allegory. It's not that God ever existed. It's not that the resurrection, it's it's the value and the principle. It's an allegory on your quest for spiritual enlightenment, and they start to change the doctrines. So would you say that prior to this 200-ish years ago, where this Mm -hmm. really started to take over what's being taught, by and large, uh, Christians and, and the leadership for hundreds of years took a much more literal approach to the yes. Bible? Yes, okay. until the interpretive moles <laughs> nestled in not only to the seminary schools and the leadership uh, of the churches, it was a literalist approach. And that was the same way right from the time of even the Roman church. And then you have this battle going back and forth between the interpretists and the literalists. And it's that polytheist influence through the um, the monastic orders, which are the places where the polytheists hide within Catholicism, right? And they were part of the organization of the Templars with the Cistercians. And they're based on the Ascetic monastic order, which were polytheists and followed the religion of Egypt, which is really important when we get to the Catholic side and seminary schools and education. So after the fall of the Knights Templar, the Invisible 33, the original Rosicrucians, as we said, after the fall, they're meeting with the Pope in 1317 to reestablish the new Templar order within the church. And I cover this off in my new book um, and the Jesuits in my new book, which I didn't cover in book one because I didn't want it to be a, a distraction. And it's a fairly large subject. So in book two, I'm able to deal with it and sort of cap it off because I'm, I'm going to give the Thelemic tree organizational structure and also the genealogical tree, which is also called a uh, Thelemic tree in, in book two as well, just for different purposes. Same type of allegory, but different sort of agendas and imagery within uh, the bloodlines and, and the occult. So they sit down with the Pope, and the Pope says, yes, we can do this, but you're not going to have your 33 people on the board running this. I'm going to put my 33 people. Mm -hmm. And with a Pope, you never know whether or not they're polytheist or monotheist. So he could be just, 
in the duality of Gnosticism, they have white hats and black hats. You don't know which ones are the white hats, but they all don't have humankind's interest in mind, and they all worth a, they, in both the white and black hats both worship the same pantheon of gods. So it, it's irrelevant. It's just different tactics and strategies and how they treat humans on the road to destroying us. Yeah, and so the uh, what the uh, 30, invisible 33 do is they start to poison people <laughs> to get them out of the way and then they have to go underground because the the Catholic Church is going to come come after them and so they start to rebuild their organizational structure in, in this thelemic tree as we talk as I talk about after that and they seize on an opportunity starting in the 1500s beginning with a fellow by the name of Francis Borgia whose ancestors and grandfather and other uh, ancestors were popes. So they're part of the black nobility of the pope uh, controlling the religions. And and, uh, and just as I've said, all said at the beginning of the show is that they control the religious class at the top, right? Mm. So Francis Borgia is a Basque and he's a Basque Royale and he's in the court of you know, the Holy Roman Emperor, King Charles at that time of Spain. And he is going to come across this Ignatius of Loyola, who's having Mary apparitions and putting him on a course to change the Roman church from within. And so Francis, who's the head of the Montessa <coughs> order, if you're not familiar with that, that's the order that was created by the King of Spain at the fall of the Knights Templar a couple hundred years earlier in 1307 to take all of the Templar assets. So there was another organization that did that in Portugal. So they controlled all of the assets and it was called a called the Montessa order and it was a royal order. And Francis Borgia is the grand master of that order at that time. And he bails Ignatius out of jail because he's being persecuted through the Inquisition at that point in time. And so he starts to fund him at that point in time. And by about 1536, they're kind of an official order. And by 1540, they have several other bulls, and they're rising in popularity and ascent. And by 1565, Francis Borgia becomes the third Grand Master of the Jesuits. So now you have this order controlling the Jesuits. The Jesuits interpret their theology, which is Gnosticism, but through Heliopolis and the seven sacred sciences. So everything they view is that interpretive approach through the same religious system that the Essenes were that set up the other, you know, is the base model for the other Essenic orders. And part of that hierarchy was adopted by Freemasonry and the Templars for their organizational structure. Um, so you see all of these sort of intersections that otherwise wouldn't be sort of understood or, or explained. But as they move forward, by 1570 to 72, um, they have got control of two things based on papal vol, pull and the influence of the Spanish throne and the wars that are bankrupting Rome. And there's some in you know, sort of internal Holy Roman Empire intrigue going on there for control. But the Vatican is forced to, uh, I'll back up a step. First of all, just before that, starting in about 1540s and into the 1550s, there's several papal bulls that will give the Jesuits control of education. 
and all of the seminary schools. Mm. And then by 1570s, early 1570s, they're given control of the banking. Wow. So just as the Rothschilds were created as uh, controlling banking outside the church uh, by the Bauer family in Germany, who changed their names to the Rothschilds right. when they set up the London Bank, um, they now get control of the second or maybe even the greatest banking system, which is the Catholic. And they're going to move that to Switzerland, where the, most of the Templar assets, some went to Scotland, some were kept in uh, Spain and Portugal, and some were taken elsewhere around the world. But the sort of the cash money, it went to Switzerland under the Knights Hospitaller, and many Templars went there as well and just sort of blended into that order. And that's why you have that white cross for the banking symbol uh, of Switzerland and their banking and their flag, all from the hospitalers who create the banking state. Mm -hmm. And then in the last hundred years or so, uh, the Rothschilds moved their banking there. So you have all the world's most important banking in Switzerland, where all the money that's off the books is kept and controlled by the Royals uh, and the infamous Swiss banking system. So with the control of the Jesuits have over the seminary schools and all education, they are now changing doctrine through the seminary schools and introducing the interpretive approach and polytheism within Roman Catholicism. Now, there's a period where the Jesuits go rogue and get out of control in the 1800s, and they get in trouble with the royales, like the King of Spain and a few other ones, and they get completely sort of taken down. They're still sponsored in places and, and kept uh, under some protection in Russia and in Germany and some other places. And then at the time, as you get into the later 1800s, as you start to see more of the merry apparitions come about and understand the beginning and the whole faith of, of uh, Jesuits are based on apparitions of Mary and the Heliopolis religion. Um, mm. You have a pope that popes that are being exiled and imprisoned in France, they reinstate with their papal bull uh, in response uh, the Jesuit order to be their sort of Knights Templar order again to give them protection, right? Yeah. Because they're being um, taken off the Pope and other ones being replaced by the Royals. And there's you know a lot of back and forth between control over the religious pillar and the governance pillar in that aspect and by the 1880s they the uh, Jesuits have full powers that they're originally instituted again uh, that they're instituted in their beginning and now they have control over the banking again they have control over all of the education again and have been working their agenda and finally got with Francis their black pope on the white pope seat and so they can first time in both. history right and first time in history and you know uh you know everybody thought francis you know, a lot of people thought francis was going to be antichrist or the false prophet and i knew he was going to be important i used to take a lot of heat when i first started out there saying no there's too much to happen he's too old he is he could be the last pope before false prophet uh, or he's just making the way. And I don't necessarily fall into the uh, Pope prophecy. Yeah, I was just going to uh, ask you about that. <laughs> of Malachi, where 
he would blend in with that as being the black pope. And I think that's not, I don't think that that is uh, true prophecy true prophecy i think there's a lot of polytheist influence there with their agenda and timetable but essentially they don't control that timetable they're always trying to bring about the end time but they can't because of the restrainers so that's how they got control of all the education and that's why you see continued control within the catholic church of the doctrine and again no prehistory no prophecy and they're told not to teach it and it's absolutely crazy because you know in the comment that was made about darwinism and science and you know they didn't want to be politically sort of incorrect i mean the the most outrageous thing i can think of is is deny parts of the preternatural nature of the bible when the bible is the most preternatural book ever written and to say we can use parts of that preternatural nature but not other parts is absolutely inconsistent and nonsensical yeah so then did they um yeah luke was asking is the restrainer the the holy spirit is that the way to kind of understand that well i you know i i was brought up on that thought when i was when i came back into christianity that that would be who it is and you know i think you can make a case that it is is the restrainer because jesus clearly said that when he left he would send the holy spirit yeah problem though is you start to get into some issues in terms of using that as a basis for a pre-trib rapture Hmm. and you have to start to reinvent scripture because you have the holy spirit testifying for the tribulation saints in the first three and a half years that and so that's one of the problems with preconceived conclusions you have to do that and again i think you can make a case that it's the restrainer holding um holding uh, Antichrist back, but I think you can make a better case, and I'm open to both, but I think scripturally you can make a better case that Michael is the restrainer. Okay. And mm-hmm. Michael fights against the beast empires, and he, he's the protector of his people, right? And the, uh, the Jewish people, and that he doesn't fight so that those beast empires don't come about. What he does do is he prevents Antichrist from coming to power, which is ordained for the midpoint of the last three and a half years. And so he will permit the seventh empire to come about. He won't permit Antichrist to come about until that time, uh, midpoint of the last seven years. So when he sits down, and we know he sits down because in Revelation 12, that's when he stands up. That's at the midpoint of the last seven years, and that's at the time of the war in heaven with three and a half years left in Revelation 12. And then that's when he fights against the armies and he sends all of those armies of angels of of following Satan and they're sent back down to the earth. It's part of the woes. And so, yeah, I think Michael might be a better case for the restrainer. Um, And just because of what he does, right, and what his titles are. And uh, we only get that one passage as to who the restrainer is. Uh, But obviously it's at force to do something like that because when you start to match that up with the spirit of the Antichrist, 
that was there even in the time of Paul and is always there, is always lurking, always wanting to make someone be Antichrist, whether it's Alexander as one of the beast empires or Nebuchadnezzar or somebody before the flood uh, or Napoleon or Hitler or the wannabes, because there's going to be multiple Antichrists in the end time, one that Antichrist is going to need to defeat to claim himself to be the true Messiah, even though he'll be the dragon Messiah. So we have to be careful of getting ahead of our skis or leaning over our skis, so to speak, when we're talking about end-time chronology and jumping ahead of events that um, that haven't happened or, or just, you just, it doesn't work that way. There's a set sequence of events and we need to be careful with that. And even when we get closer, there's going to be multiple antichrists. So until he crowns himself in the temple at the abomination as the king of Jerusalem, as the Western Europeans would like to see, um, then we haven't seen the antichrist. Even when we see him rising, he's still not antichrist. Which we're warned uh, if if we hear of Christ yes, over the here, signs and wonders. Christ over there, those are signs of the Antichrist. Yep. Like you said, multiple servants, you could say, or, you know, but it's not the yeah. Antichrist, but it's part of the deception. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, it, if we had, like, for example, the New Testament written in Hebrew, um, we would get uh, whatever an Antichrist title word that you would use in Hebrew. Uh, I'll use the Greek Antichristo, which is the Greek version for Antichrist. It would be Ha Antichristo, the Ha for the Ha Satan or the Ha Elohim, the as opposed to an indefinite article. Mm. We would get that as language, but but it's a little bit more nebulous written in Greek. You know, circling back to some of the um, the infiltration and their their goals of leading people away from God, it's interesting. I was just telling Luke before you jumped on this morning, Gary, that um, <clears throat> I had an interest in uh, in watching Prometheus uh, for for the second time, the movie, and yeah. uh, and seeing it with new eyes. And yeah. um, boy, can you see those four things: leading away from God, no credit to God, slandering God, yep. and honor their yep. gods in little. Yep snippets of you know there there's like even the uh so it's the husband and wife um uh team the scientists yeah. um who are yeah. the true believers in finding yep. out these yes. gods and he says to Our her resonator. Yep. yes and he says to her because because she's still wearing the cross that apparently she got from her dad or something right and he goes you know are you going to give that up now and yeah. it's like turns out uh, creation isn't that big a deal. Anyone with half a brain and some DNA or however you put it. <laughs> yeah. And man, yeah. just, yeah. And of course the alien is Nephilim like. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Well, I was just telling Luke, right, right at the very end, he yeah. gets attacked by the one creature and then makes yeah. a hybrid. And I'm like, there you yeah. go. There's the God, yeah. our creators creating yeah. a hybrid. Yeah. Uh, Gary, I wanted yeah, to, uh, they, uh, it's amazing what they do in their entertainment. No, Sorry about that. It, yeah. it, it's interesting how it's infiltrated all, all aspect of, uh, of society, um, which obviously steers people's mindsets. So you've hit on a, a, a an amazing timeline. I'm curious um, on where their efforts might've, intersected or, 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 or got into, um, 
communism because communism obviously teaches a lot of the same things yeah. when it comes to their infiltration of the school system and in their indoctrination. Yeah. And I'm assuming there's some kind of yeah. intersect where. Oh, of course, of course. Nothing like that is by coincidence. And if I could and, set up your answer real quick, Gary, because the one thing you said is social masonry led to yeah. Fabians, which led to communism. Oh, yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's so they call it social masonry. Like Opus Dei was created as social masonry within the church in the 1900s as well, uh, the Roman Church. Uh, so they got have another group in there. Um, and it was created as a way to lead people away from God and to create chaos um, and that they thought that they control it with their 1%. So if you look at its whole hierarchical structure, um, is, is its uh, totalitarian left-wing fascist ideology where no God exists. So it leads people away from God. They get control of the army, education, <laughs> banking, everything that's controlled by that 1%. That's sort of the model that they uh, created, uh, communists. So within the royals, there are royal bloodlines all over the world. So when we talk about the 13 families, those are Western bloodlines. Hmm. But understand there's similar organizations around the world, and particularly in China, uh, particularly in Russia. Uh, and even rivalries that were on the continent. So you have World War I, which was a battle between cousins because they all intermarried. Hmm. It's a rivalry, right? And so in World War I, we saw the fall of the Romanovs, which is the junior offshoot of the Putyanin out of Kiev in Ukraine with the original czars. And the Junior offshoot is through intermarriage with other less ennobled royales, just as the Plantagenet is a junior offshoot of the Anjou in Western Europe. Uh, just so you sort of get kind of the concept and the importance of, of these names and, and, and bloodlines. And that uh, social masonry was created to bring down what the Western European bloodlines viewed as a more pure bloodline and a more dangerous rival. So if you get into the creation of social masonry, that is going to be learned by Lenin and Trotsky and the doctrines that they're going to get, they're all funded by the secret societies and then the banking system through the Rothschild arms and the American banks are going to fund them to go over to Russia towards the end of World War I when they're weak to overthrow them so that they can get control and put their people on there. But it goes rogue on them uh, and it gets out of control. And, and so you have the wipeout of the line. They like that. Um, because it's like the Highlander movies, right? There can only be one at the end, and there can only be one dynasty at the end. That's why they chop their heads and they have the quickening, which is a matriarchal fairy allegory to that entertainment series. Same agenda, same goal. Um, and so then they create national socialism, same banks, same groups of people, which is a little bit further right than uh, communism. 
and it's more right than anarchism, which is also an offshoot of social masonry designed just to create anarchy, on, anarchy around the world, to create chaos, to drive people and the world into the arms of the globalists, who they also fund through social masonry. And it's going to be a national socialist global state government versus a so it's global nationalism versus national socialism that nazism was created and they funded it through the same type of banking system nazism is is uh created through a combination of theosophy which starts up in the late 1800s which is uh the religion established by the gnostics to establish a uh, religion that was going to be the religion of the end time, where science and religion will merge back to its original roots. And that's Alice and, Bailey made that popular? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so that ideology is adopted in, in, into Germany as Ariosophy. So it goes rogue with that Ariosophy as well. And that's Volkish and Aryan ideology and gray ideology overlaid onto theosophy that forms the Rice Church, which is that pan Aryan church in 1933 that is established, which is a polytheist order, uh, part of the kind of organizational structure for all beast empires, including the end time and what was before and beast empires and before the flood. And it's designed to take down communism that got out of control. But unfortunately, Nazism gets under control and all of those organizations and bankings have to uh, flip flop back and take down national socialism, recreate it as a right wing organization hmm. and as evil. And, and of course, people buy that. It's the National Workers Party. This is its union, its left, its complete left-wing ideology that is an extension out of social masonry but they don't stop there but what it did is is nazism ended up bringing down the kaiser bloodline hmm. and then it took down the habsburg bloodline is sort of an extension of the consequences and then they took this social masonry through communism and then they launched it with mao zedong in China, and it took down the Shah dynasty, XIA, which has an Eastern and a Western royal bloodline of the original kings that take their bloodlines back to the dragon creator gods, both before and after the flood. Dragon being a seraphim angel that gave them the divine right to rule, like uh, Prince Charles. And they have secret society organizations that are even more complex that's in the West than and what they have in the East, and they're considered equivalent organizations run by those royals over there. Now we have a descendant bloodline on the Chinese throne named Xi from the Western branch bloodline as we start to move for the end time. And Putin is claiming he is the illegitimate uh, offspring of the Putyanin bloodline, beginning with his grandfather, who comes out of nowhere with the name and no genealogical trace before that, or for the name in uh, that was born in Kiev, home of the Tsars, home of the Putyanin bloodline that established Moscow with Vladimir the Great that Putin um, honors with statues and the double eagle and everything that goes with it. Mm -hmm. um, and becomes is succeeded by the offshoot through intermarriage as the Romanovs in about the 1600s. 
He believes, and this was published in newspapers, and it could be his propaganda, it may have truth, it may not, but he believes he is a bloodline descendant from the Putyanin through an illegitimate, as an illegitimate offspring through his grandfather. His father moves to St. Petersburg in about World War I, which is how he ends up in Russia, and he's trying to build that Scythian, Tuatha de Danan, Tsarian empire again and why Kiev is the holy city for him that he has to have. And so you start to see that sort of rising. So when you talk about social masonry, this is a weapon designed by the Western European bloodlines to bring down their rivals so that they can crown their bloodline as the dragon messiah as they get closer to the end time. Wow. So they're actually vying for, <laughs> I mean, they're all bloodlines, right? But they're all, but they're yeah. all vying for it. No, I want the antichrist to be, come for there my can, team. Yeah. There can only be one dynastic family ruling the world in the new age or their new millennium that they, that they're going to. And that makes promised. a lot more sense. Knowing that background, when you hear on the surface that Putin is not a globalist and, you know, that he's kind of fighting against these globalists that are out there. But when you give it that kind of legs, it makes a lot more understanding yes. the rivalry and the, yep. the fighting. Yep. Yes. And understand white hats and black hats. Right. Yep. Putin is not saying... I don't want to be part of the new world order or the Nephilim world order, as I like to call it, or the Nephilim world order. I want a larger role in it. Xi is not saying, I don't want to be part of the new world order. I don't want to be, have it in the model of the Western Europeans. So that's all that's going on. This is the roars and rumors of wars as we go through the sorrows, if indeed we're in the fig tree generation, and I think we are, that is going to be happening as these bloodlines and empires start to rise. And you're going to start to see more of these bloodlines start to appear. We may not recognize them as what Putin is claiming, and Putin might even be replaced by somebody else who will claim Putin and bloodlines. Uh, and, and same with Xi, he's president for life, and who knows? I think he, if he's made himself president for life, he's made a claim to a dynastic mm. family. And so as we start to see this, we need to look behind what they tell us and understand the world through the lens of the royals who have controlled this world as the visible ones with the divine right to rule from the invisible ones, the Nephilim of the Shemaim, the rebellious angels who rule from the council of gods over the 70 nations, uh, Psalms 82, Deuteronomy 32, yes. uh, as I connect that through, um, and First Chronicles and Genesis 10 for the 70 nations, also numbered by the 70 sons, as is more prophetic of Jacob, uh, in, into the millennium, and also the 70 by virtue of the same number uh, nations from Adam before the flood that that council of gods ruled over. You know, Balim after the flood for the first hundred years or so, or, or so until they go to the pit prison for creating the Raphaim. The parent gods like El 
in the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, Baal is the same as Osiris. Baal is the same as Anki. Baal is the same as Zeus. Just different names for the same gods in different pantheons. Kronos would be a parent god. Uh, Anu, father of Anki and Anlil, was a parent god. Those ones controlled the 70 nations before they went to the pit prison at the time of the flood. And then there's ones that moved up afterwards, after the Balim, uh, went to the pit prism and still rule the council of gods with Satan sitting atop and still awarding that divine right to rule through the divine right of uh, bloodlines and royal inheritance rituals like King Charles III just went through that is a ritual. They didn't show the whole ritual this time as they did with Queen Elizabeth, um, but it goes back into prehistory, back to Mount wow. Hermon and the oath-based system. Yes, and and I I love that we're already touching on Nazism and and that rise because I'd I'd like to take the second half of our time to talk about Hitler, Crawley, the occult, what did they open up dimensionally, all that sort of stuff. But there's a few more points I want to hope to cover <laughs> uh, before we get there as a foundation. So I appreciate Luke asking about communism because I had a note in there about that. Um, that you've talked about, Gary, in other interviews. So I'm going to throw a few things out. Okay, so Thule Society, beliefs about superhumans ruling before the flood tied to Aryans. So maybe yeah. let's just start with that. So Thule also pronounced Tula, mm -hmm. uh, as it comes out of in case uh, people are using one or the other sort of pronunciations, was a, an Atlantis-like equivalent or an Asgard-like equivalent of North mythology. And in that belief system, that they believe that they were the Aryans, the Indo-Aryans, both before and after the flood, the four groups or five groups, as I cover in book two of these Indo-Aryans um, that show up after the flood, um, that they were blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Pale skin. We'd also recognize that as Tuatha Dudanan, mm -hmm. also as red hair, hazel eyes is another variation, uh, and that uh, this was the uh, this is the basis for the Rice Church ideology, where they reduced Jesus to a mortal prophet. Well, one who would be an avatar of an avatar, uh, yes. just as Vishnu was the avatar for uh, Buddha and many others, um, and and Krishna as well. Um, and you have uh, this understanding that they believe that they descended from these Indo-Aryans, and that if you could backwards engineer that bloodline or genetics you could recreate those giants who ruled before the flood and then after the flood and who the royal bloodlines come from. And so that's what they're trying to create. So in the mix of the creation of the Nazi uh, culture and religious political parties um, that are going to form the ideology and the theology of Ariosophy, uh, as they took that can, name, can you, you define have a convergence. 
Yeah, can you define that a little bit? Because you said it's a perversion of theosophy, but maybe just help our listeners understand what those two are. With the Aryan influence, so instead of Theo is in God-osophy of Sophia, um, it is Aryan uh, worship of Sophia. Okay. Similar worship, similar worship, just coming from a different angle of uh, foundation. Yeah, so it has that that real and grail uh, ideology and volkish ideology uh, laid over onto theosophy is what it is. Okay. Okay. And that combines with secret societies. So Tula is a secret society or the Thule society. Uh, and if there becomes a formation of secret societies, and I name those in, in book book one uh, and, and the beginnings of them, and, you know, they include like the German Anordnen, which is a uh, an order, a secret society that's created in the early uh, 1900s, along with the Temple Order and a number of other ones, what, of which the Thule Society is going to be formed out of as an extension society that... Uh, many of the Nazis are part of. So this becomes a secret society created ideology and a polytheist created ideology that was created to destroy communism, but it goes rogue, right? And they're going to have to take it down. But this is the same thing that they want to do because they believe they can now control it, (laughs) that they want to create into national or global nationalism, right? And so anything that is national socialism or nationalism under anything is now the enemy because they want to do it on a larger scale for bringing about the world religion and and the world government. So it's a terrific archetype for the end time plate with an antichrist or Fuhrer system. Fuhrer comes out of Wagner and uh, other writings, uh, which again is all part of the same belief system. And uh, Wagner is has significant Volkish and Grail ideology interwoven into it. And if I got it right, it's either Percival or Longren that uh, Hitler sees uh, and sits through that entertainment uh, the night before he creates the Rice Church. Hmm. Hmm. So it's interesting that you're saying that the Nazi Party, uh, as their, you know, is just another one of these organizations similar to what we were describing. They're rivaling one another. It kind of went rogue, so they got to snuff it out. But then you, they obviously did some things right. But you think of like Operation Paperclip and some of the the activities that the Nazis were involved in. They're like, well, we actually like that part of it, and we're going to consume that and continue okay. to. Uh, exp- yeah. So, two things on that. So the banks are going to fund for the sponsorship of Nazism. They're going to fund uh, certain families and corporations. And so it's going to become an oligopoly that works with the government, but the government ha- doesn't have total control over the oligopolies because that's the royales, that's their corporations. Uh, whereas communism had absolute control, there's a bit of importance required for each, um, but they're working for the same agenda, right? And that's what 
basically Putin has established in Russia. That's what China has been moving towards. That's our corporate system in in the West. Um, and so it doesn't, the ideology is, is that it, it doesn't um, create an inevitable usurping of power and doing things that they, that, you know, get out of control because there's too much power in, in, in too few hands, but it's an avenue that they want to have for the infrastructure for, for, for the end time. And so when we look at then the technology that comes out of world war two is again, it's another analogy for the end time. And one of the overarching signs that we get other than the sorrows where the contrived catastrophes, man-made catastrophes get stronger throughout the fig tree generation, which is the other, uh, the you know, two, the second of the three overarching signs. So there's one specific generation where all of those events that Jesus is predicting will be fulfilled. So much so he underscores it so that people won't reinvent what he says, but of course people do, um, that um, heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. Mm -hmm. That is in stone. And the third overarching sign, it would be like the days of Noah. And the technology that merged with the seven sciences that we talked about earlier got so powerful that they were able to do things that we can't do today. And we're just catching up to that technology. Everything from building Machu Picchu or the pyramids, all of these things around the world that are unaccounted for to understanding the universe and showing that in their imagery to sacred geometry, to DNA manipulation, genome manipulation, chimera creating creatures, all sorts of things that we just are catching up to because that knowledge of the angels, the angelic technology merged with the seven sacred sciences to bring about in conjunction and partnership with the usurping of the kingships of the giants and the mystical religion and Okian mysticism caused the flood to be the judgment, both in polytheism, as the polytheist gods bring the flood as well, not just the evil god of the Bible, as they would like most people believe, but in all accounts, it's either the god of the Bible or the uh, fallen angels who bring it about, just depending on which lens that you're looking at it through, to uh, destroy these giants and start anew, even though they show up again after the flood in Bible accounts and all uh, all, all other accounts. So, If it's going to be like the days of Noah, there should be this deliverance of this technology to prepare us for the apocalypse by fire. So roll that back now to World War II as an archetype for the end time with an Antichrist figure, with a Babel-like religion, with a genocidal or holocaust against the the Jewish people, which would have turned into genocide given the time, the promise of the Third Reich, which is a new millennium, right? Um, it's, it's, It's definitely a beast empire wannabe, an end time wannabe, and they get this rapid, unexplained, advancement of technology. In 1933, they don't have an army. They are bankrupt. They're not developing any of these technologies. 
And by 1938 to 39, they have most of this technology that they're trying to produce. They create things like the Panzer and Tiger tanks, revolutionized tank, um, the tank tactic and warfare, a model that is still used to this day. They created the rocket engine. They created jet engines, single wing aircraft, this bell-shaped thing, which is thought to be interdimensional. And it was all, as you say, all swept up by Operation Paperclip and taken to mostly to the U.S., although the Russians did get some of that as well, but not nearly to the same level. And when asked, where did you get this information? How did you do it? And they would have developed the atomic weapon if if the Allies did not take out the heavy water plant in Norway, I know this is being recreated, that the, the Germans never had the ability to create this technology and the Americans were the evil ones that brought all of this technology into the world. It was a race. The Germans were ahead of, ahead of the Allies. And again, if they had been able to produce any of this technology in numbers, they would have easily won the world. So that's why you have all of these sort of amazing sort of things, I so think. Say that, that again, happened. Gary, if you don't mind. Um, where was that um, that site in Germany? And you said the Allies oh, took it out? You're talking about heavy heavy water plant manufacturing in Norway. In Norway. Okay, I'll have to yeah, research had, that one because I didn't realize yep. that they there's were. Movie, and, there, and there's movies about it too, but they're trying to make it go away. So, so. I, I, and maybe I'm, I'm jumping the gun and you're, you're about yeah. to hit, hit the punchline here. How did they yeah. get this technology? Yeah. And because it's inexplicable, right? Had they been able to get get these things produced in, in great numbers, they would have easily uh, have taken over, over the world over, over time. So, so, yeah, they were asked, how did this come about? They said, we didn't create it. We were provided this information through their spiritual guides, celestial uh, white masters, uh, aliens, there's all sorts of different names, but this comes through with the understanding of theosophy, ariosophy, secret societies at depth levels in both, and Rosicrucians at that level, they all communicate with the spiritual world, and that they were communicating as adepts whether they're secret societies or religious, um, with these invisible ones who are feeding them the technology. So very similar to the days of Noah, the Genesis 6 time. Exactly. The transfer of, of information, technology, in exchange yeah. for something else. So what do you think yeah. that the, these individuals like the Nazis are giving the let's say the angelic or the lucifer uh, in his minions that are giving the knowledge what is what is the nazis giving in return what are they getting what are the what nazis are they giving the, so what, what are they giving get? like well, cuz i've heard it I, I i mean part of it is worship i've i've heard it it's tied to i mean obviously the days of noah was well, there is an exchange between women or, you know, they were given their, their women. There was a breeding program. Yep. And, you know, the, in exchange for technology. Was some of that stuff taking place during that time? Oh, I think so, uh, to a certain degree, in limited amounts. Um, 
not like what we'll see in the end time. What they were going to get in return was uh, to be the ones who rule the world, the one who creates that bloodline dynasty, the ones who um, will permit the invisible ones to walk amongst them again, as they did both before and early days after the flood. So they are what the, what the Nazis are are giving that giving the fallen angels is worship, yes, uh, humans to do what they want with, yes, major blood sacrifices, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, the destruction of all the Sethites in modern parlance to wipe out all those who worship God and to give them and to give them complete rule under one government uh, where they'll have one antichrist figure who's going to be a messiah-like figure and it's going to be a end result as a realm on their own for the fallen ones away from the oversight of God. So if you look at that movie as, a, as an analogy because some of these movies are terrific analogies for what they're trying to do. There's a movie called Doctor Strange and there's a few of them. But you have this uh, magical alchemy, science, religious type of people fighting inter- interdimensionally against the evil god of the universe or the evil dark lord of the universe, which is what they call the god of the Bible, yeah. to win Earth in a treaty as a realm on their own. So that Satan can be God and they can reestablish that uh, Nephilim world order in a visible way and to walk amongst humans the way it was before the flood and it was taken away from them.